reported uh, by modern historians because they tend to ignore facts in order to promote their own agenda. So we just live in a world today that is really deteriorating. And if Christians who are not sitting in Bible class every night studying the Word so they can learn how to face and handle these kind of crises are going to absolutely fall apart when we wake up within the next 15 or 20 years and have no freedoms left because that's where this country is going. Compared to when I was a teenager, we are now living in a tyranny. If you think about all the gradualism that's taken place in terms of removing freedoms to do different things, um, this is just unbelievable. But it's the frog in the pot syndrome where you... um, you just keep turning the heat up, and eventually the, the frog adjusts to the new circumstances until he eventually boils to death and he never jumps out of the pot, and that's what's going on. Well, one of the things that we're doing at West Houston Bible Church to kind of help promote the Second Amendment is that we're going to have a men's camp out on April the 12th on Friday night and Saturday morning. And following as many, uh, all the principles of safety and high, high, uh, <clears throat> giving a lot of attention to the, to everything that we're doing out there at Orlando's. Uh, a number of years ago, Orlando put up a berm in the back and we set up a little rifle range. I go out there quite free, frequently to shoot because it's nice to be quiet and in the woods and away from people. But we've got a number of people who are very well trained with firearms in the congregation and we're going to have a little, uh, firearms safety training and teaching the men. And if you have a son that you believe is old enough to start learning some basic principles of firearms training, then we're going to uh, uh, do that under with your supervision. And this will be a great opportunity if you're a man or young man and you're not too familiar with firearms, it's going to be a good opportunity for you to learn a few things uh, and to uh, not only about firearms but also about knife sharpening and a few other things. It's a good time of fellowship. And so we're going to have some uh, 22 pistols and 22 rifles with lower caliber for beginners or those who are just getting familiar with things and then uh, maybe a few other things for those who've got a little experience. So that will be on... Um, Friday, overnight, Friday night out at Orlando Salas's place. So that's, we're going to have a fabulous time, great time camping out and, uh, enjoying some, uh, some great fellowship. So be in prayer for the weather. All right. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, ready to study the word, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again and again we see that the uh, governing forces in this nation seem to choose the path of death rather than the path of life, the path that leads to economic and moral servitude rather than the path that leads to economic freedom and expansion. 
And Father, so often we see legislators taking the uh, taking the wrong path, finding a solution that really doesn't solve anything but does increase the power of government and limits the freedom of citizens. And we as believers, although we are citizens of this country and we have responsibilities in relation to our citizenship, we have a higher citizenship and a higher calling in terms of our position in the royal family of God and our role as believers to be uh, sources of light in the midst of, as Paul puts it in Philippians 2, a wicked and perverse generation. Father, give us wisdom to be able to enlighten people from the truth of your word, for we know that the only solution is your word, the truth of your word, that while it is important to be involved in political issues and to be involved uh, as part of the solution because that's part of our responsibility as believers, ultimately we know that the only solution is an internal change that comes about from understanding your word and a right relationship with you. And so, Father, we pray that you would uh, help us as a congregation to continue to be a light and a beacon of hope and truth to people who are desperately in need of uh, learning about truth so that they can have hope. And we pray tonight as we continue this study that we'll be encouraged by the ministry of the Apostle Paul in the early early church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Last time we looked at Paul's ministry in Lystra after he left Antioch, basically uh, fleeing because of the uh, persecution that broke out in uh, Antioch, uh, Pisidian Antioch, and then they went to Iconium. While in Iconium, these rabble-rousers from the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue in uh, Antioch showed up and again stirred up the crowds in Iconium. And from there, they went to Lystra. And while they were at Lystra, again, now Jews that had rejected the gospel and were antagonistic to uh, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas are, are following them to uh, to, to uh, Lystra, and again, they, they will cause problems there. In fact, it will lead to his stoning. So this is one of numerous uh, things that happened to the Apostle Paul, many of which are not recorded in Scripture other than one passage in 2 Corinthians which talks about uh, other shipwrecks and uh, flagellations or whippings and stonings and being beaten many times. Uh, all part of uh, what it means to be a pastor. Some of us as pastors may not have experienced that physically, but we've experienced it a few times verbally. And uh, I've been fortunate the last uh, 15 or so years of my ministry not to have to deal with much uh, of that nature, but I got it out of my system the first two or three years I was a pastor, had to deal with a lot of uh, people who thought they wanted to know the Word of God, but they just wanted to have their beliefs uh, validated. And so when you taught the truth of God's Word, it would often generate a lot of hostility, a lot of uh, anger and resentment because you're taking a stand for the Word of God. I've often told uh, young pastors that over the course of your ministry, the chances are you may pastor two or three uh, different congregations. Not every pastor stays in the same place for uh, multiple decades. That's more and more unusual these days. Often you change positions. I said it's better to start with a 
tough congregation than a good congregation because in most people's experience, they only have uh, one tough experience. It's better to get that over with and handle that when you're on training wheels the first couple of years. And then uh, after that, hopefully the Lord will bless you with a uh, with very good congregations. So Paul faces hostility. He faces antagonism, and he has the spiritual courage, which is what informs his moral courage to stay the course despite the threats, the anger, the resentment, and the conspiracies that are laid out against him that do culminate in physical violence and physical attacks. And so this happens in Lister before they, they get out and they go to Derby. But in this section that we're going to look at tonight, we're going to see just a couple of verses that focus on his message in Lystra. And it raises a couple of doctrines. One is common grace, and the other is this the aspects relating to repentance and turning and the role of repentance in salvation. Now, I'm going to say I've been doing some additional studying on these uh, concepts recently, and you may hear a thing or two that are a little different tonight uh, as we uh, work these things out and try to get to uh, what the Scripture teaches as opposed to what people often think the Scripture uh, the scripture says. So Paul is in his uh, second missionary journey. Actually, this slide is of, the, uh, of his uh, uh, third missionary journey, but it's the best slide that I found that shows, or the best map that I found showing the location of Iconium, uh, Lystra, and Derby. So Paul uh, came to uh, Italia here, which is where the port is located, made his way first to uh, Pisidian Antioch, then to Iconium, then down to Lystra, and then they will escape to Derby. Then at the end of finalizing his ministry at Derby, he's going to reverse course. Now that shows the courage that the Apostle Paul had because he is basically run out of town in each of these locations, and now he's going to go back because of his commitment to the ministry that the Lord Jesus Christ has given him, he's going to go back to each of these locations where uh, they would people are there who wish to take his life, and he to make sure that these congregations, the groups of believers there, are well founded and well led. And all through this, as I pointed out last time, and by going over to Romans chapter one, in order to go through the passages in Romans one eighteen to twenty three. We see that this is another example of truth suppression. The response of the unbeliever operating on on negative volition, hostility toward God, is that when he hears the truth, he reacts against it. The, The position of the unbeliever having rejected the evidence of God in the heavens, as articulated in Romans 1, 18 and 19, he is suppressing the truth. Now, what happens in the course or in the psychology of truth suppression is that before long, people get to the point where they are believing the lie so profoundly that they can't think in terms of truth or objectivity anymore. And so two things happen. One is that they can't understand the truth at all. It doesn't make sense to them anymore because they have 
uh, completely re reversed the polarities in their thinking so that as the prophets in the Old Testament say, they are now calling bad good and calling good bad. And once a culture as a whole gets so caught up in the uh, psychosis of rejection of the truth of Scripture, then you have a whole culture that's operating on pure fantasy. They've made up their own reality. They start with their own uh, re their own idea of how uh, the human race came into existence. They they hate the idea that the human race is created by God in the image of God because they hate God. They want God out of the picture. They're suppressing and rejecting that truth. So they have to come up with some way to explain how we got here. So they, in the ancient world, they had creation myths. And then in the modern world, we call it science. But evolution is just another creation myth. And it flies completely in the face of what the Bible says in terms of who man is and how man got here. And either the Bible is right completely and totally, which means God created recently in time, maybe five, 6,000 years ago. He created directly uh, the human race in six consecutive 24-hour days, and he created a perfect world for the inhabitation of the human race. And the human race was created as the representation of God to rule over creation, not to let creation rule over him. And as Christians, we should call it creation, not nature. Nature implies some sort of autonomous entity that exists uh, as a result of happenstance, whereas creation makes it clear that it has a creator and that that creator designed the creation to be exactly uh, what it is. And man was set over that creation and is unique as a living being because mankind is in the image and likeness of God. He is to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Man, therefore, is given responsibility to uh, watch over and to care for God's creation, not to destroy it. There is a biblically correct view of how man is to be a steward of creation, whereas 99% of what we get out of the so-called green movement today is politically motivated from pagan mythology where uh, the creation is worshipped over the creator, of the creator, because the creation, or as they refer to it, nature, is autonomous. And nature is the product of an evolutionary process that is not the creation of God, and therefore uh, uh, nature must be uh, uh, maintained, and if it's destroyed, then they blame the human race because in the view of the mythology of the uh, ecological movement, it is mankind that is the malignant uh, disease on the planet. And so it would be better... Uh, for the human race to be removed. Now, a lot of people don't understand the difference between a biblical view of creation and responsible stewardship and what uh, passes for environmentalism. But a lot of environmentalism just borrowed concepts from Christianity, from Judeo-Christianity. You go back to the Mosaic Law, and there are numerous 
uh, laws in the Mosaic Law related to the proper and responsible stewardship of, of, of creation. And this has always been part of the Judeo-Christian ethic. But in paganism, creation is deified so that the human race now serves creation as opposed to overseeing and ruling over over creation. So this is all part of truth suppression where the unbeliever redefines everything from A to Z in the creation and ends up worshiping the, cre- the creature rather than the creator. Uh, the scripture is clear, both Old and New Testament passages, that <clears throat> there is enough evidence in the creation, in the universe, in the heavens and on the earth, of the order and purpose of the uh, and structure of everything in in creation, that there is a creator, enough evidence where they are accountable. They are, as Romans 1 puts it, without excuse, so that when they stand at the end of days, at the end of time, before the great white throne judgment, they will be held accountable for having rejected uh, rejected God. Romans 1.20 states that since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now, this really does form a background or a backdrop to Paul's message in uh, in, uh, Acts chapter 14. Initially, they have uh, performed a miracle where this uh, man who was a cripple from his from birth, not from inside the womb, but outside the womb. We covered that last time, pointing out that both Greek and Hebrew terms are very clear uh, that that the beginning of life is birth. That's full human life. That doesn't mean that what's in the womb is not human, or subhuman, or nothing more than something like a cuticle or a because uh, that's a piece of dead skin or a mole or something like that to be removed, but that it is, uh, apart from some uh, act of God, going to culminate in a human being who is in the image and likeness of God. And I pointed out that this was the ancient Jewish position as well as ancient Christian position, and it doesn't authorize uh, abortion in any way, shape, or form, but it does make us realize that that life, full life, begins from, at, at birth. From birth to death, those are the parameters that we find in Scripture. You never have Scripture defining birth or defining life from conception. It is always from uh, birth, from the exit of the womb. And that's what we see here uh, dealing with the cripple. From birth, he's been crippled. Everybody knew about it. He had never walked. And, and that means all of those muscles were atrophied. Uh, all of the joints were probably frozen. He had never been able to to walk a step in his life. And instantly, as the, the Apostle Paul tells him to stand up on his feet, he leaps up and he walked. And this was such a profound miracle that all of the people in Lystra knew about it. And they come out and they make this assumption. And this is what we what I pointed out in terms of this diagram. They, their, their assumption is from their pagan, non-biblical worldview that these must be the gods of their pantheon, the Greek gods 
uh, Zeus and Mercury. Mercury was the uh, spokesperson for the gods, so since Paul is the one who is speaking, they uh, assigned that role to him, and and, and uh, they assigned the role of, of uh, Zeus, the chief god in the Greek pantheon, uh, to Barnabas. And then in verse 13, we read that immediately the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, he was uh, Zeus, called Zeus outside the gate. And that related to that particular temple. Uh, we've discovered that through archaeology. And he brought various animals, oxen, garlands to the gates in order to uh, have a sacrifice there to, uh, to Barnabas and to Paul. And they're speaking in their ancient language of Lyconian, as indicated in the middle of verse 11. And so Paul and Barnabas aren't clear as to what's happening. They witness all of the excitement. Hundreds, if not um, a couple of thousand people are gathering around them, and they're all talking excitedly. And then this priest came up, probably dressed in all of his finest uh, uh a priest wear, and he comes up and, and bringing animals. And as soon as they catch on and realize what's going on, they have a typical Jewish response to something that is blasphemous, and they uh, begin to tear their robes. We see this in Acts fourteen fourteen when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this. They tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out. So there's an immediate reaction. They don't say, "No, no, no. We just have to. We have to teach these people." No, they they have a a, a strong emotional, uh, physical reaction and immediately try to stop what is going on. Now, before I go any further here, I want to stop on just one little point here to make sure we understand uh, what's being said here. Again, this is the second time we've seen this in this chapter where Luke identifies Paul and Barnabas as apostles. Now, the noun apostle is a technical term in Scripture. The term comes from a Greek word, apostello, which means to send someone out on a, on a mission. So when someone was sent on a mission, uh, they were commissioned. Uh, so to speak. We still use that word commission. For example, when someone enters into the military service and they are going to be an officer, they have a commissioning ceremony that relates to their their mission as an officer in the United States Armed Forces. Uh, apostles, the term apostle is used in several different ways in the New Testament. There are, involved in an apostleship, you have someone who does the sending you have the individual, and you have the mission that they are sent on. Now, when we think of the, uh, the term apostles with the capital A, that refers to the 11 disciples, that's minus Judas Iscariot, the 11 disciples who are commissioned by Jesus Christ in Matthew uh, 28, 19, and 20, along with parallel passages, to take the gospel, and it's restated in Acts 1-8, to Judea and Samaria, from, from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. They are the apostles with a capital A. Now, there's a twelfth apostle, I believe, that is brought in, and that is the apostle Paul. 
Now, all of these apostles have been uh, witnesses of the resurrected, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 9 tells us about uh, the encounter that, the, that Paul had with the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, where Paul wit, was a witness of the resurrected Christ and is personally commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So he's commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ, he has a specific mission primarily to taking the gospel to the Gentiles, and this sets him apart from the other 11 who primarily have a mission to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Peter has a mission to the Gentiles, but these are apostles that have all been commissioned by Jesus Christ. Then you have a second lower tier of, of apostles such as Barnabas here. Junius is mentioned in another passage and a couple of others are mentioned. And these were more like what we call missionaries. They don't have the spiritual gift or authority that the first rank of apostles had. They are apostles in terms of their function. They are commissioned by a local church. It's the local church of Antioch that commissioned the Apostle Paul and Barnabas to take the gospel out on this first journey. So they're not commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no prerequisite in terms of having been a witness of the resurrection or heard the teaching of Jesus. As uh, Peter laid out in Acts chapter 1, we have no record of Barnabas ever having any of that. So Barnabas isn't the first tier of apostle. He's not one of the 11. He's a lowercase apostle, which simply means he's commissioned by a local body of, of believers, a local church, to take the gospel on a specific trip or specific uh, mission. So this is how the word is used here. Now, there's another way we could possibly understand it. I think this is not the best option, though, and that is that since Paul is the apostle leading the trip, then those who are with him are uh, considered to be his assistants, and so they would be uh, considered apostles by virtue of their association with Paul. I don't think that's the best option. I think the best option is that, that they are apostles as because there are others who are indicated as apostles who we know were not commissioned by Jesus Christ, were not witnesses of the resurrection, and had a limited function as simply someone sent out as a missionary from a local church. That's not the spiritual gift. There's no spiritual gift to missionary. I, I know that there are some people who get that idea, but there's no spiritual gift of missionary. Uh, every believer is a, appointed a missionary from the instant that you were accepted uh, that, or that you accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. You have a missionary responsibility. It's part of your ambassadorship as Jesus Christ to take the gospel to everybody on the planet and uh, everybody within your sphere of life. So that's just part of it. Every believer is a missionary because you are a citizen of heaven, you're not primarily a citizen of this earth anymore, a citizen of this world. Your citizenship is in heaven, and you've been sent here as an emissary of the throne room of God to present the gospel, to proclaim the good news to everybody that you can. That is our, our mission. So <clears throat> Barnabas and Paul have this mission, and they're representing the heaven, heavenly Father, and they are appalled at what is taking place in front of them. And so 
Paul begins to challenge them, and he gives a succinct message to them. Now, I want you to notice the difference between this message and the message he gave in the synagogue in Antioch, in Pisidian Antioch. When he started in Acts chapter 13 in Pisidian Antioch, he starts with the Old Testament. He says, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Uh, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. Now, who does he mean by our fathers? He means the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, his son Isaac, and his son Jacob. He's referring to the patriarchs of, e- of, of Israel. That started in Genesis chapter 12 because he recognizes that his audience is scripturally informed and educated. They know the Old Testament. And so he doesn't need to define God for them. They know who God is because they are familiar with the Old Testament. And so he starts there. But this is a different group in Acts chapter 14. They're pagans. They think uh, when they hear the word God, they think of the gods of the Greek pantheon. They think of uh, of Zeus and Mercury and Apollo and uh, uh, Athena and all of these gods and goddesses that the Greeks have that are just uh, uh, sort of uh, grandiose uh, images of human beings. The Bible says that God created man in his image, but in paganism the human race returns the favor and creates their gods in their image. And so we see these little finite gods because that's, Exactly what these gods of the Hindus, the gods of uh, of the Greeks and the Romans and the uh, Norse, all of these are these pagan gods, the gods of the Celts. These are all just finite uh, representations or finite gods that are really just human beings sort of blown up uh, a little bit larger. They have all the failings, all the faults, all the sins, all the problems of... Uh, of human of human beings, so Paul has to address this crowd differently from another crowd. And this is a principle that you and I have to learn: is that not everybody we witness to is going to um, is going to be the same. They're going to have different backgrounds. They're going to have different understandings. And what we need to do sometimes is talk to them, and not just use vocabulary that's very familiar to us, because they may not have a clue what we're talking about. And when we talk about God, we have no idea what they're hearing, what they're listening to. When we talk about Jesus, they may have no idea of who Jesus is. Now, when some of us were were young. This wasn't true in, in American culture. Most people had some vague knowledge of biblical uh, teaching and Bible stories, but we live in a world today where the vast majority of people in American churches, notice I said in American churches, I didn't say out there on the street, but in American churches, don't have a clue what Bible stories are all about. They've never read their Bible. They get nice little uh, sermons on Sunday morning that focus upon how to live life better, how to be happy, how to experience all of their fullness, their great little motivational messages, but they don't learn the Bible. They don't know anything about people like Gideon. They don't know anything about Meher Shalal Hashbaz or Mephibosheth. Uh, They don't know anything about uh, uh, Malachi or any of these other names from the Bible. They don't know know the difference between uh, uh, Jezebel and Jehoshaphat. 
And so they, it's, they have no concept. When we, when we start talking about biblical things, they're just lost. And so that's not any different from what Paul's facing in this, in Lystra. And he says, men, why are you doing these things? Raising the question. In other words, saying that really means stop. Um, we also are men with the same nature as you. And I pointed this out last time that he's just simply using a term here in the Greek indicating we're, we, we have the identical nature that you do. We're human beings just like you are. Quit trying to worship us as if we were gods. We have the same nature as you. And secondly, he says, and we preach to you that you should turn from these useless things. Now, this is the word uh, evangelizo here indicating that we are making, uh, uh, giving you good news. And, the, and so he tells us what the good news is. Now, it's important here because part of this helps us to understand the gospel. Now, we didn't get uh, by inspiration everything that Paul said in this message. Neither did we get everything that he said in Antioch. But as we put together these different uh, messages of Paul's, we get a, a good understanding of the gospel that we should be proclaiming, the good news. And what he says to them as unsaved, untaught, uh, biblically ignorant, scripturally ignorant uh, Greeks, as he says, you should turn from these useless things to the living God, from the idols of wood or stone or metal to the living God. The emphasis is on living God. The God that we worship as we just celebrated on Resurrection Day on Sunday is a, the Lord Jesus Christ who rose from the dead. Our God is a living God who is the source of life, and he brings out that contrast. Notice he's teaching by way of contrast. I've had some criticism over the years because I will frequently contrast biblical teaching with the views on the street, paganism, whatever, and people say, oh, you're being critical. See, that's what happens from the uh, mid-30s generation and younger. They don't want to hear what's wrong with somebody else. They just want to hear something positive. Well, the trouble with that is you don't learn how to think critically. You don't learn how to compare and contrast uh, opposing uh, viewpoints. I just read a fascinating book, Israel, uh, it's either Israel Among the Nations or Israel and All the Nations by Richard Bass. Great book. I highly recommend it. It covers the issues related to Israel in world history, Israel um, and All the Nations, something like that. Israel on All the Nations or uh, in All the Nations or Among All the Nations, something like that. Richard Bass, that's the author, fabulous book, about 250 pages. The first chapter deals with how do you evaluate history? Somebody makes a historical claim. The Arabs in the Middle East say that the Jews never lived there. They, were never, they never had a temple on the Temple Mount. Uh, they're just Johnny-come-lately, just showed up making this claim, but there's no evidence whatsoever that the Jews were ever there. In fact, these people who call themselves Jews aren't really Jews. They're really descendants of some uh, uh, Russian group called the Khazars who came along in the uh, 
uh, early Middle Ages, and the king decided that uh, after evaluating Christianity and Islam and, and Judaism, he declared his whole kingdom to be Jews, and that's who we have today. Ancient Jews were all wiped out. There are no modern Jews. That's called the Khazar theory, and it's just a crock. But um, but that's the kind of stuff that that has a lot of uh, a lot of popularity on the Arab street. And so uh, that's the Arab claim, and that there's no uh, legal basis for Israel to have any kind of uh, a claim to the land of of, uh, of Israel, the land that we call uh, the modern state of Israel, plus uh, Judea and Samaria, which is uh, uh, spoken of by people who. Uh, don't really know the facts as the West Bank. So I'll let me educate you a little bit. When you, I got in this conversation with a guy on email a couple of years ago. He said, he, because he had written out this email and he referred to it as, as, uh, the Palestinian state and he referred to it as the West Bank. And I said, and I corrected him gently. I said, you need to be careful with these terms. He said, well, I don't want to get into politics. I said, this is hot, buddy. You call it the West Bank, you have made a political statement. You know where the term West Bank comes from? In 1948, in 1948, when Israel declared their independence, the five Arab nations that surrounded them, uh, Jordan and Egypt and Lebanon, Syria and Iraq, instantly attacked. They had already been fighting, but they instantly attacked on the promise to the Arab people that they would uh, annihilate the Jewish people. Uh, almost overnight. And so uh, they immediately attacked Israel. Now, prior to 1948, here's a test question for you. Prior to 1948, who had uh, government sovereignty over uh, the territory known as, or the region known as, known as Palestine, the area between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean, who had governing sovereignty, who had the legal right to govern and control that territory before May fifteenth, nineteen or May fourteenth, nineteen forty eight. The British. It was a Brit called the British Mandate. Now, uh, the authority for the British Mandate came from who? It came from the League of Nations, 55 nations that banded together at the end of World War I who were given the authority by all the nations to set not only all the boundaries for the nations in Europe, but when the Ottoman Empire broke up at the end of World War I, um, they had to figure out who was going to control all of that real estate. And so the Ottoman Empire broke up in 1917, and prior to 1917, there was no Syria, there was no Jordan, there was no Iran, I mean, no, no Iraq, there was an Iran, it was ancient Persia. There was no Syria, I mean, excuse me, there was no Saudi Arabia, uh, there was no Jordan. All of that had been part of the kingdom of the Ottomans, the Ottoman Empire, going all the way back to the early 1500s. So nobody, the, the, the prior government over that territory from the from uh, the Jordan River to the Mediterranean had been under the British governing authority since World War, the end of World War I, and before that, the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire didn't exist anymore. The, um, the, the British left on May 13, 1948. They evacuated. They were fed up with it. And so 
they had, through various uh, legal tools, legal instruments, going back to uh, the San Remo Conference, which we've, which I've talked about here before, San Remo Conference in 1920, said that all of the land west of the Jordan River was to be given to the Jewish people for a national homeland. Now, that's been basically ignored by every body of international law since then, but it was uh, uh, validated, authenticated, and approved by the League of Nations as international law. And uh, uh, since the end of World War One. All that land belonged to the Jews as their national home, which means as as a nation. So the Jews are claiming on the basis of international law that they have sovereignty over the land. So the issue here is who's right? The Arabs and their story or the Jews and their story? How do you tell the difference? How do you evaluate who's making a right claim? They can't both be right. But modern man comes along and says, don't tell me what the other side says or condemn them. Just tell me the the good things. But if you learn the good thing, you can't learn to think critically and evaluate competing claims for truth. And I picked up Bass's book, started reading it, read the first two chapters, and thought he'd been sitting in Bible class for the last five years. He he had an extremely clear presentation of how to evaluate competing and contradictory claims of truth in history. Excellent, excellent uh, analysis. And so what we, what I, the point I'm making here is that Paul is not being politically correct here. He tells these wonderful people in Lystra that they've just been worshiping these really nice gods, but we've got a better God for you. Isn't it good? See, that's how we are today. We don't want to say anything bad about people. He says, I want you to turn from these useless things. See, he wouldn't be immediately thrown out of America because he's too negative. He's too critical. How arrogant can he be to call their religion useless? But if you are a biblically-based thinker, you have to recognize that any religious system other than biblical Christianity is useless, and it's not going to provide anything for you. So... Paul says, we, uh, we preach to you the good news that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. And he immediately brings in creation. And, and he's paraphrasing here from Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, where God said that on the, you shall work six days in part of the Mosaic law. You shall work six days, rest the seventh. Why? For in six days, God made the heavens, the earth, and the seas, and all that is in them. Now, about three years ago now, I had lunch with one of my uh, Jewish friends, extremely sharp, uh, a uh, extremely sharp lawyer here in town, and um, not quite what you would call an orthodox, but extremely observant probably what you might call a conservadox Jew, really believes the Old Testament's the Bible. And we were just uh, talking about some different things, kind of getting to know each other the first time we had lunch. And he said, well, I really do. I said, well, what do you think about the Bible? He said, well, I think it's the Word of God. I think God revealed this to Moses and that it's absolutely true. The only question I have is on creation. I said, why? He said, well, because we have all this scientific data. I said, yeah, but who's right, the scientists or God? He thought about that a little bit. He said, but I just, you know, there's so many different views on these days in Genesis 1. And I said, okay, you're Jewish. 
You try to observe the Sabbath, although unfortunately many times you have to go into the law office and work on Saturdays. It makes you feel bad, but you really try to observe the Sabbath. What if I told you that those days were really long geologic periods of thousands and thousands of years and that you can work without worrying about the Sabbath for the next 10,000 years and then rest on the on the next 1,000 years because those days are really just long periods of time. And he looked at me, and to this day, every now and then I'm bringing it back up, he says, I still don't have an answer for that. He said, that, that, I've never heard anybody make that point. But if God says work six days, rest the seventh, because that's the way I did it, then you, you're forced to, if you believe that six literal days and a literal seventh day, you're forced to believe Genesis 1 is six literal days and a seventh day. But you see, this, this was as contradictory to the pagan view of the origins of the human race at that time as it was to, as it is to modern man. And people today say, why are you bringing up creation? We get to the gospel. Well, you're going to tell the apostle Paul that he, he's spending too much time on creation. He didn't even explain the gospel here, does he? The closest he gets is you have to turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, and the seas, and all that is in. Now, he's going to develop it eventually, but not right here. But I want to spend a little time on this because it's important to understand the terminology here. The word here is turn, and the the Greek word is the word I have up here on the screen on the left, epistrepho, epistrepho. Eddie, we need to adjust the darkness on this uh, right-hand machine at some point because it's a little washed out, a little too much light. So we need to elevate it a little bit. I know what I'm looking at, and I know what's not there. So you can't see what I'm looking at, but I can, and that washes out the background just a little bit too much. Um, Anyhow, the word here is epistrepho, and it means simply to turn, to return or to turn back. It's base, It's a fundamental term. Now, it's parallel. Epistrepho is the word that is used to translate in the in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, to translate the Hebrew word shuv, which is the word that's used in Deuteronomy 30 for when you turn back or return to me, then I will restore all of the uh, Israelites to the land as a precursor to the establishment of the messianic uh, messianic kingdom. So the word here is to turn. Now, what's interesting, and I've made probably made this mistake on more than one occasion, is that we have a tendency to equate this word as if it's a perfect synonym to another word that is really loaded uh, theologically. And that's the word repent. The word repent. Now, repent is not an exact synonym to turn. But in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word, and I have the Hebrew word for repent on the lower right, it's nacham, it's never translated by uh, epistrepho in the, le- in, the, in the Septuagint. It is always, uh, nacham is always translated by, uh, uh, depending on whether it's a verb or, 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 or noun, it's always uh, translated by the word group metanoia, which is the, the Greek term. Now, I've put up here, uh, this is the basic dictionary meaning given from the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology, that metanoia means change of mind 
repentance, which is, you know, that's defining a word by itself, which isn't a good definition, or conversion. Uh, the, the verb metanoeo means to change one's mind, and then they have repent in there, or to be converted. Some will put in there that metanoeo means to have remorse or regret. Now, I have a problem with that. Sometimes we have remorse or regret, but sometimes when we change our mind about something, it is not accompanied by uh, any kind of emotion. Uh, there are times when I have... Uh, regretted things. There are times when I've done things wrong and I've done it wrong so many times I'm more just sort of fed up with myself. There's not a lot of regret or remorse, sort of like when you get a speeding ticket. I know that's probably never happened to anybody here. You just sort of get fed up with yourself. You don't you're not really sorry or or, or you know there's no remorse there. And this this word is this word remorse or is really a tough term because in translations across the board, you have people who want to translate confess sin as feel sorry for your sin or have remorse for your sin. That's a problem we've had with translating into the Russian Bible. So it's, it, it, it's taking a secondary feature, that is that emotion, and making it a primary part of the meaning of the word. The primary part of the meaning of this word is simply to change your mind. Meta is uh, the Greek preposition, which means after. Noeo has to do with thinking the mind, so it's an afterthought. You've done one thing, now you have second thoughts, and so you change your mind and you go in another direction. But there is an element there, as Nacham puts it on the right-hand side, of regret, uh, regret, and that may accompany the sense of the term. Uh, metanoeo does at times seem to have an emotive idea, but that's a different idea than the word turn or shoe. Now the question then becomes, uh, the question that often comes up with people is, do we need to repent of our sins in order to be saved? This is the answer of many Calvinists or many legalists is, oh, if you haven't repented of your sins, well, which sins? The ones I've committed are the ones I haven't committed yet. That's just a facetious uh, question that uh, uh, needs to be asked, though. What sins am I repenting of, um, uh, the, the past ones or the future ones? And how much should I repent? If in some cultures, uh, I, for example, in China, if a woman doesn't repent of wearing lipstick, she can't possibly be saved. That was probably true of some uh, Christian groups in uh, the West at one time earlier in our culture. So this idea of repentance, what role does that have in salvation? Now, here's another thing to think about, is if you think repentance is necessary in order to be saved, then the Gospel of John, which was written specifically so people could be saved, John um, uh, 20, 31, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life through his name. Uh, he, he uses the word believe over 95 times in, in the Gospel of John. He never uses the term repent. Now, either you can't get, if, if repentance is necessary for salvation, then either repentance doesn't mean what a lot of people think it means, or um, John, you can't get saved reading the Gospel of John. I mean, those are the only basic conclusions that you can get, that you can go to. 
So since New Testament thought is shaped on Old Testament thought, uh, I can demonstrate that to you simply. When John the Baptist and Jesus showed up uh, on the scene in Israel, in, in Judea, at the time of Christ, the message was, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, the word they used was uh, metanoia. So if they were, to re- they were preaching to the people, repent, the people had to know what it meant. Where did they get the idea? Where did they get the idea for the kingdom of God? They got it from the Old Testament. So they already knew what repent meant. They're not like modern Christians who've had 2,000 years of bad theology to confuse them over the meaning. So we have to go back to the Old Testament to find out the meaning for this word. And we have one very clear passage. Actually, it does use both the words uh, shuv and nacham in the passage, but it gives us a very good understanding of what the word repent means. In Jeremiah 8.6, uh, Jeremiah says, I listened and heard, but they do not speak aright. Uh, no man repented of his wickedness. No one repented of his wickedness, saying. So this is how they would repent of their wickedness, is a second line, saying, what have I done? Isn't that interesting? Now, the word there for repent is nacham. Now, repent means to second guess what you've done. What have I done? Doesn't necessarily imply remorse. It may imply regret. Regret does not have to be a heavily emoted term. It just says, I made a bad decision. Now I've got to straighten it out. Uh, so that gives us the idea. What we have there um, is this idea of repent means what have I done. Now, it is regret. It is changing the mind. Now, you had these two words used in Scripture. And as I've gone back and studied this, that if you were to graph out using a couple of concentric circles here, the meaning, repent has a narrower meaning. You can repent in the sense of just being sorry for your sins or sorry that you got caught, but you haven't turned. Turning is a broader concept which also includes the idea of changing your mind. But turning goes beyond repentance. Turning is the next step. So I would put it, if I put it on a logical timeline, the first thing that has to happen when a person hears the gospel is to change their mind. They repent. But that's not enough. You're just changing your mind. You're just have, maybe you have more the sense of regret. Now, this is if it's addressed to a, a, an audience of unbelievers. If it's addressed to an audience of believers, it doesn't mean what it means if you address unbelievers. For believers, it means basically the idea of you need to confess your sin. You need to admit your wrong, uh, admit your sins, and then get back in fellowship. But with an unbeliever, it means you need to change your mind about those false gods or that false system of thought that you had. Then you need to turn. That's the mental shift from where I was to where I need to be. And that is followed logically by believe. Now, if someone says believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then when you believe, what have you done? You have, without stating it, you have metanoia. You have changed your mind. You have turned and believed. It summarizes the whole process. Some people um, 
want to say, oh, you have to repent. But repent isn't mentioned everywhere. Uh, it's not mentioned here. Paul just says turn. But in order to turn, you, it presupposes a changing of the mind. So these terms are uh, terms that are not precise equivalents, but they uh, really describe uh, segments of what happens prior to faith. Faith is simply believing in Jesus Christ that he is the one who died on the cross for your sins. If you believe that, you have, whether you uh, identified it or not, you have changed your mind and you have turned to God away from false systems of thought. So uh, Paul emphasizes this, that they have turned, they should turn from the useless things to the living God who made the, the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. He's, this is the good news. Got these, a couple of these slides out of order. So then he goes on to talk about this God in verse 16, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. He allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Now, this is the doctrine of common grace, basically. Uh, in the ancient world, God worked only through the Gentiles from the time of the creation of Adam until the call of Abram in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. There were only Gentiles. It's just a term that also means nations, and it refers to all, uh, all human beings other than Abraham. And, um, but because of the rejection of God on the part of the human race, especially as it's exhibited at the Tower of Babel, God sort of turned away from the Gentiles and focused on blessing the entire human race through the descendants of Abraham. Specifically, it would come to be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So uh, what Paul is describing here is in bygone generations, that is back at the time of, of uh, Genesis 12, God allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without a witness. We just saw that in Romans 1.18 and in Psalm 19.1-3, the heavens declare the glory of God. So he didn't leave himself without a witness. And furthermore, he did good. God graciously provided for all of the Gentile nations in that he gave rain uh, from heaven, he gave fruitful seasons, and he filled our hearts, that is, unbelievers, with food and with, uh, with gladness. And this introduces the concept of common grace. Now, common grace means that God extends to all human beings uh, through his general providence or his oversight of the affairs of men, his oversight of history, uh, he provides uh, general blessings for all human beings in relation to their course of life. Uh, this uh, is stated in a couple of different passages, such as Matthew 545, uh, God says in reference to, I mean, Jesus says in reference to God and his message that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he, talking about God, he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So good things happen to good people and bad people. Bad things happen to good people and bad people. We live in, in uh, the devil's world, so bad things happen, but God is the one who oversees everything. Psalm 145, verse 8, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. 
He is slow to anger and great in mercy. So he shows his compassion to all human beings by not immediately sending them all to the lake of fire. Uh, the Lord is good to all, verse 9, uh, Psalm 145, 9 goes on to say, uh, the Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. And then in Romans 2, 4, Paul says, or do you despise the riches, talking to unbelievers, uh, uh, in reference to unbelievers, he says, do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? So the goodness of God leads people, it's designed to lead people to that point where they can change their mind about God. In terms of common grace, there are general blessings to all mankind. There are blessings related to God's sovereign plan. God had a sovereign plan related to the uh, British Empire in the 19th century. And as the British Empire sent out their soldiers to establish colonies and to conquer nations and peoples, they always had missionaries with them who took the gospel to India, to Africa, and to numerous places around the planet. And so that was part of God's uh, general blessings to all of mankind is that the British military took the gospel with them throughout the world. It doesn't mean everything that they did was right. It doesn't mean God was uh, 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 putting his uh, uh, stamp of approval on everything that the British Empire did, but God in his general common grace used that to bring the gospel to uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. Uh, we have blessing by association. We have a we have generations of Americans who are blessed by our association with the founding fathers who established a just and righteous form of government and one that, while not perfect, contained within itself means of self-correction so that it could continue, if the constitutions follow, to provide liberty and freedom to all. Um, there are blessings related to the general quality of life that apply to both believers and unbelievers. has nothing to do with what they've done. And then God also restrains evil. Second uh, Thessalonians 2, 6 through 7 says that now uh, something is restraining uh, evil uh, that God may, that will be revealed in his own time. Verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. That's a reference to the restraining ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, uh, during this age. So there's common grace. This is what Paul began with. And then with, that, with him saying that, immediately the multitude began to sacrifice to him or try to, and they tried to something. They could barely restrain them from, um, from doing that. And then in Acts 14, 19, I can wrap up the chapter. It's pretty much a summary at this point. Uh, Acts uh, 14, 19, the Jews from Antioch and Iconium then showed up and having persuaded the multitude, so their rabble-rousers working the crowd, they persuade the crowd to turn on Jesus. Notice this, on a dime. One minute they want to worship them as God, the next minute they're stoning them. And that is a perfect picture of truth suppression. They didn't fit their, when that, that, that pagan idea that tried to absorb and redefine what they were teaching, when they said, no, 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 you can't do that, what was the pagan response? They flipped on them, and they went from adoring them to hating them 
and they begin to stone them. That's what will happen to you sometime when you're witnessing to somebody. They're going to think you're wonderful until you say, if you don't believe me, then you'll spend eternity in the lake of hell, and then they're going to call you all kinds of names. And if you haven't had that happen yet, it's a lot of fun. Um, so they stoned Paul. They dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. This is a Greek word, nemizo, which means to, usually it means to suppose something that's not true, a false assumption. And so Paul isn't dead. If he were dead, Luke would have said he was dead. He, so a lot of people think that Paul was raised up from the dead here, but he's not. The, the language doesn't allow it. He, uh, uh, they just thought he was dead. They knocked him out. He was unconscious. He might have gone into a brief coma. Uh, but then the disciples gathered around him. He rose up and went into the city. Now, if you had just been stoned in that town, would you get up and dust yourself off and walk back into town? This is a small town. It's not like Houston where you can go to some neighborhood where nobody would know you. But that shows the courage of the Apostle Paul. And he stays overnight. The next day he left with Barnabas to go to Derby. And then in verses 21 to the end of the chapter, we get a summation of what he did. They preached the gospel, evangelizo. They proclaimed the good news of the gospel uh, to the city of Derby, made many disciples. That is, a disciple is not equivalent to a believer. A lot of believers are not disciples. A disciple is somebody who's a student of Jesus. There are a lot of people who are just believers. They're going to be saved, but they, they haven't made a decision in their soul to be a student of the Word of God. So they made disciples. Then they returned back through all of those places that, that ran them out of town, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of, dis, of the disciples. They did that by teaching the Word of God to them again. And then they uh, challenged them. That's what the word exhort often means, is to challenge them to continue in the faith. Don't give up. Just because you're saved, that's not the end game. The end game is to grow to spiritual maturity so you're prepared to go and rule and reign with Jesus Christ in his kingdom. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, challenging them to continue in the faith, and saying that we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Now, Who's he talking to here? He's talking to disciples. These are those who've already been saved. They're press, they want to press on to spiritual maturity. So when he's telling them about entering the kingdom, entering the kingdom doesn't mean getting saved. They're already saved. Entering the kingdom is talking about their future role and responsibility to rule and reign with Christ in the millennial kingdom. And that only comes through going through tribulations. It's that second category we've studied in Romans on Thursday night that there are all believers are heirs of God, but only those who suffer with Christ will be heirs of Christ and rule, joint heirs with Christ and rule and reign with him in eternity. This is that second category. He's encouraging them to press on through the adversities of life, stick with their beliefs in Christianity and the word of God so that they're prepared for their future in the kingdom of God. So they then appointed elders or leaders in the church. We'll talk about elders later on, uh, leaders, pastors in each church, uh, prayed with fasting. This is never a command. We know that it is practiced, but it's never commanded in Scripture, as I pointed out when we studied the doctrine earlier. And they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. 
Notice the emphasis, again, is always on believing in the Lord. And then they went through Pisidia, Pamphylia, preached the word, evangelized in Perga, then went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had completed. So they go retrace their steps to Antioch and Pisidia, then they head down to Italia, and then take a ship back to Antioch. We'll come back and look at a couple of details there before we move into the next chapter next week. Let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening, to reflect upon your work with Paul, and that you can do the same kinds of things with us as we can gain the same courage from your word, uh, the courage that comes only from a consistent walk by God the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that you would encourage us to be faithful witnesses and to endure and stick with the word because that's what prepares us for our future time to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.